All right, good morning. If you'll take a seat and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20, please. We're uh, going to look at verses 29 through 34 in Matthew chapter 20 as we continue to teach through that gospel. You can open your Bible or navigate on your uh, device, your phone, your tablet. You know, the phones are getting bigger now. And uh, just, I, I, I like you guys to be current on what's happening. So uh, the bigger phones that uh, people like are being called phablets because they're bigger than phones and smaller than tablets. And so um, if I tell you you have a phablet, I don't want you to feel like I've said something, you know, that you don't understand. But you'd be walking by and, did Pastor Gene just say phablet? What, what's that? I don't know, but it sounds terrible. So anyway... Matthew 20, 29 through 34, the topic, Jesus heals two blind men who follow him, shouting for mercy. The title of our message, Blind Man's Blurt. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we love you and thank you. We're so blessed to be here today. We're here in a place where you say you inhabit the praises of your people. We're here in the place where you describe in the book of the Revelation as you walking in our midst. We know, Lord, that you're omnipresent, that we can worship you anywhere in spirit and in truth, but we also see, Lord, that you have a special blessing for us when we gather together in your name. I pray, Lord, that by the ministry and the power of the Holy Spirit who's in our hearts and in this place, your word would come alive to us, that it would discern between our soul and our spirit and speak to us in that deep place that only you can reach there where you've placed eternity in our hearts. Fill it with the understanding of your love and forgiveness and grace and mercy. Give us the assurance of our salvation, or Lord, if we're not saved, the conviction of sin and our need for your righteousness to avoid the judgment to come. So Lord, in every way, bless our time in your word. We pray in Jesus' name, and those who agree said, amen. Finding a genie in a bottle never quite works out the way you think it will. There's an X-Files episode, for example, where Mulder comes across a genie. Because he releases her, the genie tells him he must make three wishes. Now, earlier in that same episode, one guy wished for the ability to turn invisible at will, something I've always wanted. The wish was granted, but the guy didn't realize that while invisible, he remains solid, and he is struck by a car and killed. Later, the guy's brother wished that he was brought back to life. The wish was granted. But the guy still had all the injuries from being struck by the car, and he was in a state of decay from having been dead. So he came to life in the state that he was dead in. Mulder wishes for peace on earth. The genie grants his wish by wiping out the entire population of the earth. He wishes for his first wish to be undone, setting things back the way they were. And then he begins writing down his third wish in great detail to be safe, but he stops before finishing it. The episode ends with a scene that indicates he used his last wish to free the genie, similar to the way Disney's Aladdin ends. And so let that be a lesson to you. If you ever find a bottle with a genie in it, just wish that the genie had its freedom and go your way before it's too late. Now, Jesus is no genie and is not obligated to grant all of our wishes. Prayer is not at all similar to asking the Lord to grant three wishes. And if the Lord does answer our prayer, it isn't with a sinister twist. Keep that in perspective while we read in our text in Matthew presenting a situation in which two blind men who encounter Jesus are asked by him, what do you want me to do for you? 
If Jesus asked you, what do you want me to do for you, what would it be? Would you ask for world peace? Probably not now. The cure for cancer, an end to all ethnic prejudice, an end to poverty? Or would it be something more personal, a healing for yourself or a loved one? It's a pretty intense question. It's packed with a lot of responsibility and, of course, ramifications. How you answer it says a lot about who you are and what you value. You answer the question in one sense, in a small sense, every time you pray. Every time you or I ask for something in prayer, we are revealing what it is we want the Lord to do for us. It might be a good idea to first ask ourselves this question, what should I ask the Lord to do? Is there something, is there a principle, for example, that could guide my asking? Well, I think there is. We're gonna see it illustrated in the story of these two blind men. Sure, they asked for their own healing, but in their case, it was just the right request because it resulted in them following Jesus and bringing glory to God. That's the principle. Ask for those things that will result in you following Jesus more closely and bringing glory to God in your walk with the Lord. We'll organize our thoughts around two questions. Number one, what do you want Jesus to do for you? And number two, what do you want Jesus to do through you? Let's take a look, first of all, verses 29 through 32, what do you want Jesus to do for you? Now, this story is also told by Mark and Luke in their Gospels. You might be more familiar with it in the Gospel of Luke because there he focuses on only one of the blind men, the famous Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. Uh, in Matthew verse, uh, uh, chapter 20, verse 29, we begin. He says, now as they went out of Jericho, a great multitude followed him. Luke and Mark indicate that Jesus was coming near Jericho. Matthew says it occurred while Jesus was departing Jericho. Uh, people see a contradiction here, but there really isn't one. It should never surprise us that the accounts in the Gospels give slightly different details. Truth is, we do the same thing as we tell events to other people. Not from lack of memory or uh, remembering things wrongly, but sometimes you just, uh, you know, you have a longer time to tell the story, a shorter time. Certain details seem more important at some times than others. Uh, and, and really, if you heard yourself tell the same story over the years, I, I suffer from the, the problem of having to tell some stories over and over again. I've been here 30 years and uh, only so many things happen to me. And, and so I've told stories and you probably have thought, that's not what you said the first time. Uh, and it probably isn't, but it really happened and it's really true. And it's just that you get different details. So that's all that's happening here. Uh, and so uh, not a big contradiction, not a problem. There are a number of possible explanations to clarify whether the two blind men were healed as Jesus entered or as he departed Jericho. One is that the two blind men were at the gates of Jericho where beggars would normally be when Jesus entered the city and then they followed him, shouting after him through the city until as he was about to, about to depart, then he stopped and called for them to come to him. And so that's probably uh, what happened and that, thus you have Matthew just talking about what happened at the end whereas Mark and Luke are giving a more full picture of the entire time. Verse 30 says, two blind men sitting by the road, when they heard that Jesus was passing by, cried out saying, have mercy on us, Lord, son of David. Now the two blind men saw something the rest of the people missed. They saw that Jesus was the son of David. The Jews believed that their Messiah would be a descendant of King David and that he would sit on King David's throne, ruling over Israel from Jerusalem. 
The blind men were declaring that Jesus was indeed the promised son of David. Not just a son of David, but the son of David who was to rule. He was their Messiah who was to rule the kingdom of heaven on the earth. Verse 31. Then the multitude warned them, saying that they should be quiet. But they cried out all the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. What's up with the multitude? I know this happened before the Americans with Disabilities Act was passed, but it seems extreme to be telling blind men to shut up. I mean, even in that cult, hey, shut up. It's rude on so many levels. Now, we sometimes tell ourselves to shut up or more commonly to remain seated. Let me give you an example. I've been in situations before where you'll hear a stirring message from God's word. I mean, just the Holy Spirit just really powerfully ministers to your heart. And then maybe the pastor or the minister, whoever it is, he'll say, now, those of you who were touched by this, stand up or even come forward and just, you know, uh, just so we can pray together or whatever. Uh, and a lot of times you think, well, I, I don't know if I want to do that. I mean, what, what will people think? Somebody might think I'm getting saved. I don't want anybody to think that I'm not saved. This happens sometimes with baptism. A lot of times you find out uh, from people, you know, that they have, they've been Christians for 10, 15, 20, 30 years, never been water baptized. And so we have a baptism and they come, they say, well, can you baptize me privately? No. In my bathtub? No, we're not gonna do that. You know, but the thing is, you, you, can, you, you think, well, somebody's gonna think, you know, I've been, I've been a deacon, I've been taking the offering, I've been teaching in Sunday school. Somebody's gonna think I just got saved if I get baptized. And so sometimes we remain seated when the Lord wants us to take a step of faith. You don't have to come forward. Um, you know, we have guys, almost every Sunday we have at least one guy, a couple of guys who say, hey, if you need prayer. The truth is we all should come forward every Sunday. If you need prayer. Yeah, I, no, that's not me. I'm, I'm all prayed up. I, I uh, had uh, 12 prayers on the way. I t- tw- you know, guys were standing on the corner that I prayed with. Yeah. So I know that, and, and I'm not saying we have to always every Sunday come forward either. But there have to have been times in your life or there will be times when God is actually prompting you, get up and go for prayer. And you sit there and you think, oh, Lord, if I sit here long enough wondering if it's really you, service will be over. And then I can say, hmm, I wonder if that was the Lord. And so sometimes you just need to get activated. And so these blind guys, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity Jesus is just cruising through Jericho and it's, it was on. Like this is our last chance, uh, you know, to be ministered to and so they went for it. Jesus is frequently passing us by but we need to maintain the spiritual status quo, we think. We don't wanna get too excited about the Lord. We need to shake up the status quo and take advantage of his presence more often. Now these guys were blind but like all first century Jews, they knew their book of Isaiah. In the 35th chapter, Isaiah said, when the Messiah came, quote, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. In chapter 42, Isaiah said the Messiah would, and I quote, open the eyes that are blind, bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. The equation these guys were trying to solve was two blind men plus one Messiah equals sight. 
What's the equation you're working on today? Is it something in your marriage? Are you trying to put something together in your marriage? Does it have to do with variables regarding your children? Maybe it's job or career related. It could be about sin in your life, how to overcome it. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you must first solve for this. One sinner plus judgment day equals X, where X is your eternal destination. Is it gonna be heaven or is it gonna be hell? That's the equation that you're solving. These two blind men took advantage of the spiritual opportunity that God had placed right before them, right within their reach. We have so many spiritual opportunities. We have the word of God, we have the indwelling spirit of God, we have the fellowship of the saints, we have prayer, we have all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. There's no excuse to sit while Jesus is walking by. We need to get engaged on every level. And so it's always, it's always good, is it not, to just take an inventory of your spiritual life and to just say, hey, where am I at in, in my reading? of the word of God, in my approach to the word of God, in my love for the word of God. Not just reading it, but, but do I love God's word? How about prayer? Do I want to pray and do I pray? Fellowshipping with the saints, all of these things, you know, to just really ask the Lord to renew and rejuvenate because one of the greatest churches of the New Testament, the church at Ephesus, Jesus came to them, he said, you are doing everything right, wrong, because you've left your first love. He says, I see there in your heart where you're not seeing and I'm telling you that you need to fall in love with me again. Otherwise, everything is just an empty, dead shell. One reason we don't get more engaged or get more involved is we don't realize we are blind. True, you've gone from darkness to light, from blindness to sight in terms of your salvation, but we remain blind in so many areas. Take any of the big issues in our lives, like marriage and family and career, and you should approach them as if you have absolutely no clue what to do and no strength to do it once you do know. You and I are to be wholly dependent upon the Lord, upon his Holy Spirit, to live spiritually in all those things and in all things at all times. We are like blind men and women groping along until the Lord illuminates for us. Look at it this way. There are, I want to say, hundreds of books on Christian marriage, but there's probably thousands. And, and a lot of them are good. I even recommend them. I, don't take me to mean that you shouldn't read good Christian literature or books on marriage, but they all come down to this. If I'm a husband, I am to love my wife as Christ loved and loves the church. I can say that a different way in 12 chapters, but that's always gonna be the bottom line. And if I'm a wife, I am to, the S word, submit to my husband as unto the Lord. There's however many chapters about being a godly Christian woman, it always comes down to that. No one can do those things apart from God the Holy Spirit. You can't do them by coming up with a list of 10 things. You can't do them by having a date night. Now, I'm for all of that. All those things have their place. I, I don't want you to not have date night. But you can have date night in a kind of a mechanical way that has nothing to do with furthering the spiritual quality of your marriage. Jesus doesn't simply want me to date Pam once a week at In-N-Out, because that's more for me, believe me. <laughs> hey, date night! 
happens to come Wednesday at noon for me. And honey, we're having a date. What are we doing? We're, we're eating at home, in and out. Double, double. Yeah. Jesus doesn't simply want to date Pam once a week at in and out He wants her to know he will never, ever leave her or forsake her. He wants her to understand that her light afflictions are but for a moment, and they're working for her an eternal weight of glory. He wants her to live in the truth that her sins have been forgiven at the cross, thrown into the deepest part of the ocean, as far from her as the east is from the west. He wants her to be comforted by his presence 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's how he loves the church. If I'm to love her the way he loves the church, I have to figure out how to do those things. And you know what? I I figured out that I can't figure them out. I can only do them if I'm filled with the Spirit and if I'm walking in the Spirit. And that only happens when I say, Lord, I I can't do any of these things. I don't know what to do. I don't even the first thing about how to do any of this. I'm a miserable failure at all those things if left to myself. And so are you. But God has given you something that no no group of people has ever had until Jesus rose from the dead, and that is the permanent indwelling of God the Holy Spirit. Do you realize that you have something that no believer ever had up until that time? The Holy Spirit was active in the Old Testament. He came upon people. He ministered to them and through them. We have the permanent indwelling of God the Holy Spirit. There's never a doubt as to whether I can yield to the Spirit. You know, guys like King Saul, the Spirit came upon them, then he was gone, and was like, hey, have you seen the Spirit? I haven't seen him for a while. David, Holy Spirit led for so long, then he sins, and then he said, man, I was like a dry, empty husk until I confessed my sin. You and I have the indwelling Holy Spirit in a way that no other people ever had. and, And that's who we need to depend upon. And so I depend upon somebody when I realize I can't do it anymore. And so read the books, but they all, like I said, they all come down to God telling you, I want you to do something you can't do that only I can do through you. And when you yield to that, then God will begin to do it. Verse 32, Jesus stood still and called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? Do you really need to ask a blind man that question? Doesn't it seem incredible to you that these blind beggars are following Jesus through Jericho and he finally turns and says, what do you guys want? Well, let me give you a perspective on this. There's a notable healing in the Gospels. Jesus is in a room packed with people. Four guys bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus on his bed and they can't gain access to the room. It's filled with a bunch of Christians who won't, you know, let them in. Christians can be rude. Have you ever noticed Christians can be rude sometimes? I remember years ago, I was in line at Calvary Costa Mesa to see the Sweet Comfort Band. They were the hot band back then. I was in line, seats 2,500 people. I was clearly gonna make it until they opened the doors and then it was like, you know, uh, Black Friday or something. My line never moved and the place filled up and I never got to see the Sweet Comfort Band. So here these guys are. They can't bring their paralytic friend to Jesus, so uh, they take the initiative, go up onto the roof, flat roof, patio roof. They cut through the roof, and they lower this guy in front of Jesus, and Jesus says, wow, look at this. Son, your sins are forgiven. That's all he says. 
And then some of the religious leaders, Jesus understands their, their thoughts and their thinking, who is this that he thinks he can forgive sins? And the Lord says, oh, by the way, so that you know that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins. And he heals the gentleman and he walk, rolls up his bed and he walks off. And so, yeah, you do need to ask Jesus, you know, answer that question. He needs to ask, what do you want me to do for you? Because there's all kinds of wants and needs what you really need is always spiritual, and what he really wants is for your life to bring him glory by pointing others to him, either so they can be saved or further sanctified in their walk with him if they are saved. Now, verses 33 and 34, what do you want Jesus to do through you? At first, on the surface, it seems that the two blind men settle for something merely physical. That might have been true of them. I don't know their heart, but I think not. And anyway, it speaks to us of that which is more spiritual. Verse 33, they said to him, Lord, that our eyes may be open. Now, clearly they were asking to receive physical healing, to have the ability to see. I like the way their response is worded, though, because it can be uh, approached spiritually. For example, in Ephesians 1.18, the Apostle Paul says, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. In Acts 26.18, God tells the Apostle Paul, he was sending him out to the Gentiles to open their eyes to turn them from darkness to light. We sing, open the eyes of my heart, Lord, and it resonates with us because we understand that there is often in our lives a spiritual blindness or a spiritual short-sightedness or a spiritual tunnel vision that needs to be addressed. And so we, uh, in our finer moments, when we sing songs like that or think thoughts like that, we're asking the Lord to really search our hearts because we don't know if maybe because of things that are happening in the world or because of our flesh or whatever, if our vision has gotten to be more of a tunnel vision. We, we can't really see on the periphery and therefore we don't know some of the things that the Lord wants to do. Or if we're short-sighted, we're, not, we're just looking at the problem perhaps and not looking at what the Lord has for us. Or maybe we've been blinded in an area where we just absolutely don't see what's happening at all and so we ask the Lord to open the eyes of our heart so that we will be able to see the way that he sees so that we can make whatever adjustments. And not just adjustments, not that we're always going off track, but sometimes we need to have the, our, the eyes of our hearts opened to have a fresh revelation of just the greatness of God's grace, the fullness of his mercy. I, I mean, I'm not saying we should cry all the time, but I remember when I first got saved and what an amazing, wow, my sins, a minute ago, I was gonna be in hell for eternity, suffering, and now all of that is like in the sea of forgetfulness. From the east is from the west. I'm cleansed. I mean, how can you not cry about that? We were at the pastor's conference this last week, and I, I don't even know why, but Don McClure was teaching, and I just started to cry. I cried like four times during his message. Just Don was our first pastor. He was talking about things that he talked about 35 years ago and being faithful and all that. I, just, I could cry right now thinking about it. Of course, Pam says I'm getting kind of emotional in my old age. But... Um, you know, there are just things that when, so sometimes the Lord has to open the eyes of your heart to what you already have and just don't think about the greatness of his grace and mercy and forgiveness. The truth is, it's too common for us to think on the material level. 
It's our default way of thinking because we live in this material world. On the job, for instance, if things aren't going well, we quickly start asking God for a new boss or if you're the boss for different employees or for a whole new job. We'll give God a day, maybe three, to get us a new, jo- uh, a new boss and then after that it's a new job. There's nothing necessarily wrong with those requests except that at least some of the time God wants us to ask for things that are a little bit more in the spiritual realm. That's why we read things like this in the book of Colossians. Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. And masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, what is true of servants or slaves and masters is obviously much more true regarding employees and employers. I sometimes think, and I want you to hear this the right way, I sometimes think it would be easier to be a slave because then you think, well, what am I going to do? I have no recourse. My master said this and did this and I'm a slave. We live in a free society as employers and employees and we have all these rights and so we immediately think, well, if I was a slave, I would have to submit, but I am not a slave. This is America and uh, so I'm gonna get you know, my rights and all that and then you complain and you say, usually, uh, you know, you can say if your complaint is valid or not because if they just offer you a bunch more money, then, oh, okay, that's fine. It's not quite so bad. Uh, but at any rate, you know, these verses have to do with your behavior at work. People come to me all the time. Well, they don't come to me anymore because they know I say this. They say, hey, I'm having trouble at work. I say, hey, praise the Lord. I'm excited for you. I'll pray that you have more trouble at work. I, I actually do. But uh, because God wants to glorify himself in that place. Doesn't mean you can't quit. Doesn't mean you can't change jobs. Sometimes you're in a a really terrible situation, but oftentimes, and more often than not, I think, that's the place where the Lord says, that's the darkness in which you are going to shine and you are going to reveal my glory. Jesus is no genie, but we can think he is when we ask him for something and then we try to accomplish it ourselves. Example, we're talking about jobs. Maybe you don't like your job situation, so you ask the Lord to get a new job. He wants to change your heart about your current job, but you don't want to wait, and you instead, on your own, you go out and get a new job because you can do that. The new job turns out to be 10 times worse than your old job. Guess who gets the blame? Because you, you don't like your job, you pray about it, but then you crash through the wall and you get a new job and you say, hey, praise the Lord, God got me a new job when he really didn't, it was just your own doing. And then when that job stinks, it's like, well, look what the Lord did, he's some evil genie. He got me this new job only to make me feel even worse than I did before. The Lord's th- thinking, hey, all I did was not violate your free will. This happens in churches sometimes where God uh, re- gets the glory for things that are actually blameworthy. Uh, I'm thinking of a church a few years ago. They were in a building project, and the people came one Sunday morning, and, and they hadn't moved into the new building yet, and the pastor said that they didn't have the money to buy chairs, and they said, if you expect to sit down in the new sanctuary, 
You have to buy your own chair. They're $35.95 each. And so after church, we're going to have a, an altar call where you come forward with a check for $35.95. And um, however many chairs we get checks for, that's how many chairs we'll have. So if you don't buy a chair, that kind of a thing. Well, people did it because they, they love the Lord and you know, they want to be compliant. And then afterwards, it's like, hey, praise the Lord. The Lord provided you know, 100, 200, 300 chairs. No, he didn't. No, he didn't provide anything. You provided that. You, you beat people into submission and said, you're going to have to buy a chair if you want to sit down. Some poor old lady who's in a walker is thinking, well, okay, you know, I need to have a chair. And, and uh, so, you know, God, God gets the glory when all the time the congregation feels the pressure of, you know, you've, you've been in churches, I'm, I'm sure some, because you've told me the stories. We've never done it, so the stories come from somewhere. Building project, all of a sudden, things aren't going well. Hey, do you have two cars? Sell your second car, give the money to the Lord. Hey, is it income tax time? That tax refund belongs to God. And then after the building gets built with great debt, I might say, praise the Lord, we give God the glory and everybody's weary and beat up because you built the church. God didn't build that church. If, if, if you on your own didn't come up with those ideas, then you did not build that church, uh, or God did not build that church, you did in response to uh, techniques that are worldly. And so I think you get the idea. I think you get the idea. Jesus is not a genie who forces you to do things and then tricks you in the end. We do that to ourselves. And so we need the eyes of our hearts to be opened rather than having tunnel vision or being short-sighted or blind. So Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes and immediately their eyes received sight and they followed him. So Jesus healed them physically, but remember these guys addressed him as the son of David. They addressed him as their Messiah who was to establish the kingdom of heaven on the earth. And we saw that in that kingdom, the Lord would be glorified by conquering blindness as well as deafness and all other physical disabilities. It is a characteristic of the kingdom of God on the earth when Jesus is ruling and reigning that there will be no physical disabilities. He will heal everyone of everything. I say, therefore, that the request of these blind men was consistent with what Jesus wanted to do to bring glory to himself. To onlookers, by healing them, he was giving evidence that their Messiah had come. Very simple. When the Messiah comes to establish the kingdom, he'll heal blindness and deafness and disability. And that's what Jesus had been doing for over three years. All the blind, all the deaf, anybody who came to him with physical infirmities. He was casting out demons, uh, proving and showing that he was the Messiah and that the kingdom was at hand. Now, although the Lord is the same yesterday, today, and forever, he reveals himself to us in different ways at different times. We call this dispensationalism. Some people say, oh, that's not true. You know, Jesus is always the same. I always ask this question, where is the lamb that you should have brought this morning for sacrifice? And you think, well, that's stupid. Well, that means that Jesus is dealing a little bit differently with us than he did in the Old Testament, right? Because in the Old Testament, you were bringing lambs and they were getting their throats cut pretty regularly. And that's not happening anymore. So there is a difference in the way that the Lord, Lord's the same, salvation is the same, it's by grace through faith, that's always been true. But the Lord deals with us slightly differently. When the Lord was on the earth in this first coming that we're reading about, he was revealing himself to the Jews as the son of David. He was their promised prophesied Messiah. 
and he went around performing the works, the signs and the miracles that the scriptures said would accompany the Messiah and would characterize the kingdom of God on the earth. Problem, they rejected Jesus and therefore they rejected the kingdom. And so we are not in the kingdom of heaven on the earth. It's yet future. It's awaiting the second coming of Jesus Christ. We live in a meantime, in a between time that we call the church age. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, but he's being revealed to mankind differently as we await his return. By far, the prevailing characteristic of the church age is the patient waiting and suffering of believers empowered by the grace of God. If you take a bird's eye view of the church age through the book of Acts and the epistles leading up to the book of the Revelation, what you see over and over and over again is the fulfillment of Jesus' words, in the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And there is patient endurance of suffering in the grace of God. Now, God still heals. Jesus is capable of wiping out blindness and deafness and paralysis and disease and casting out demons, those kinds of things. But that is not the characteristic of the age in which we live because we're not living in the kingdom. We're living in a time when the devil is still on the prowl, when he knows that he has a short time. We're living in a time of spiritual warfare. And we're living in a time when God wants to glorify his son Jesus Christ through our weakness as he makes us strong by his grace. And that happens a lot when we suffer. And so that's what's going on. That's our life in a nutshell. We suffer with grace and reveal Jesus to others by following him no matter what. That's why the apostle Peter could say, in this you greatly rejoice Though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is why the apostle James could say, brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. It's why the Apostle Paul could say, uh, we glory in tribulations. It's why the Apostle John could describe himself as your companion in tribulation. Perhaps Paul put it best in 2 Corinthians 12. He says, therefore, gladly I will rather boast in infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in my infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Prefacing that, he had, said my, he had repeated the words of the Lord to him, which said, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. So I guess what I'm saying is something like this. If we were alive in the first century and we saw Jesus heal blind men, we would think the Messiah has come and the kingdom is at hand. Today, we see Christians suffering, affliction, what does Paul say? Infirmities, reproaches, needs, persecutions, and distresses and we see them joyful and patiently enduring it, filled with the grace of God, and we think Jesus Christ lives in that person because I couldn't do that apart from 
the grace of God. And that brings glory to God. So that's the age in which we live. Jesus can still heal blindness or anything else he wants to. And we can ask him to, and we should. But healing blindness at his first coming meant a whole lot different, uh, something a whole lot different than it does now in the church age. And I'm saying it's more likely that Jesus will give you the supernatural strength to endure your trials rather than end them. And maybe it's time that we quit thinking that that is second rate. Don't you as a Christian, don't you feel like it's second rate because God doesn't heal? You ask God and you pray and you, you get before him on your knees and you say, Lord, heal me, give me my sight. Take this disease away from my wife. Don't let this child go through this. And then it doesn't happen. You say, well, okay, well, nevertheless, your will be done. I don't know what I'm doing wrong. I don't know what the problem is. If I had the faith, you don't have to be part of the faith movement to think if you had more faith, God would heal. I think we all, we all feel that burden and we feel that weight when the whole time the Lord is saying, I'm giving you grace to endure this situation because this is the time in which you live. This affliction, it's a light affliction. It works a far more eternal weight of glory. It would be nothing for me to heal you. I'm not withholding the healing because I'm a sinister genie. I'm doing it because people are watching you. And in this age in which we live, healing you won't make a difference. But what will make a difference is you being filled with the grace of God that people wonder, where did he get that peace? How can you have peace that passes all understanding? Why aren't you freaking out right now? What's different between you and me? And the difference is Jesus Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit. Remember, we have something that no one else has ever had in the history of Christianity, but that's the price we pay. It can only be revealed in our weakness. When I am weak, then he is strong.